0: Amazon EC2, or Elastic Compute Cloud, is a virtualized server product that provides the user with scalable compute infrastructure. EC2 was created in 2006 as one of the first three AWS services, along with S3 and Simple Queuing service. Since then, EC2 has provided the core server infrastructure for many of the companies that have been built on the cloud. A large-scale virtualization product like EC2 requires its engineers to have a deep understanding of scheduling and multi-tenancy. In previous shows, we've touched on subjects such as hypervisors, the noisy neighbor problem, the cold start problem, and other aspects of multi-tenant infrastructure. To make EC2 successful, these issues must be continuously revisited and resolved at different areas of the stack. Dave Brown joined the EC2 team in 2007 and now leads the EC2 compute, networking, and load balancing teams as a vice president. Dave joins the show to discuss the history of EC2 and the canonical problems of virtualized server infrastructure. We are hiring a software engineer who can work across both mobile and web applications. This role will include work on SoftwareDaily.com, our iOS app, and our Android application. We're looking for someone who learns very quickly and can produce high-quality code at a fast pace. We're looking to move beyond the world of just being a software podcast into more of a platform of information about software. If you're interested in working with us, send an email to jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We're looking for somebody who is hungry and wants to learn quickly and wants to build lots of software. If you are that person and you're hungry, it doesn't matter what your experience level is as long as you have built and shipped meaningful applications. Send me an email, jeff at Daily.com. If you are a SaaS or software vendor looking to modernize your application distribution to gain more enterprise adoption, check out replicated.com. Replicated provides tools to deliver your Kubernetes-based application to enterprise customers as a modern, on-prem Private instance. That means your customers will be able to install and update your application just about anywhere bare metal servers, in a cloud VPC, GovCloud, in their own Kubernetes cluster, vSphere. This is a secure way that your customers can use your application without ever having to send data outside of their control. Instead of your customers sending their data to you, you send your application. To your customer. Now, this might sound difficult, and maybe you're not used to it because you're a SaaS vendor, you're a software vendor. But replicated promises that recent advancements from tools like Kubernetes make it far easier than before. And the replicated tools can help vendors operationalize and scale this process. The Replicated tools are already trusted by noteworthy customers like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others, and as a result, over 45 of the Fortune 100 already have an application deployed via Replicated in their infrastructure. That's a strong sign of adoption. Go to Replicated.com for a 30-day trial of the full Replicated platform. You can also listen to an interview with Grant Miller, the CEO of Replicated, that we did a while ago. Thank you to Replicated for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and you can check it out for yourself at replicated.com and get a free 30-day trial. Dave Brown, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Great, man, thanks for having me on.
0: You were one of the original engineers working on EC2. EC2 was originally built on the Xen hypervisor. What kinds of modifications did you have to make to Xen to fit the specification for what you wanted out of EC2?
1: Yeah, so, you know, when we first started building EC2, one of the last things we actually did was really look at modifications to the hypervisor. There was a lot to do. How do I build a distributed system that can actually run virtual machines at scale, take requests from customers? Remember back then, there was nothing like it really on the internet that allowed you to launch machines and run servers. And so we kind of wanted to simplify things initially. And so we just took pretty much standard Xen and used that. And that was what we launched back in August of 2006. As we sort of over the next few years, we started to make a few modifications. And so there were a number of things we did across Zen. One of them was around the scheduler. Uh, sort of scheduling that was uh, the largest changes we did there was for our t1 instance type when that came out which is an instance type that allows you to burst um, most of our instance types today give you um, you know if we cap the capacity you get exactly what you what you've asked for And with our t-series you're actually able to get you're able to burst and so we did a lot of changes to the zen scheduler there the other area we've invested massively in, in zen has been around how do we do security updates and be able to perform updates to the hypervisor um, without actually impacting customer workloads. And so for the most part, when you update Xen, you would normally have to affect the customer workload or reboot the machine. Um, we've actually been able to, to improve Xen and, and make changes that allows us to do those updates, which you call live update, where it never impacts the customer workload at all. And, and some of those things have now actually made their way upstream into the current version of Xen. So I do still, obviously we still have a large Xen fleet. Um, Nitro is our new hypervisor. We still have a lot of Zen instances. And so some of those things have made their way upstream now as well, and we work very closely with the Xen community. So initially not much, but over the years, obviously we've changed quite a bit
0: how do you choose between making a change in zen itself versus maybe building some kind of new system or module or scheduler on top of zen
1: i suppose it just really comes down to what needs to be done to actually get the job done so what do you need to go and do and what's the most efficient thing to go and make the way to make the change and you know with like the scheduler there's really no other place to do that and with the security updates no place to do that ultimately what happened over time is we realized that we needed to move a lot of our components to hardware because we, we knew that we'd get much better performance there than continuing to run with inside a software hypervisor, and that's where we ultimately went and, and built a lot of components outside of Xen and, and built our own uh, hypervisor and which ultimately became the Nitro system.
0: What was the hardest engineering problem in starting to build hardware based hypervisors?
1: We kind of got it. We got into it sort of relatively slowly. I mean, it's, it's an enormous project, and so when you think about taking the hypervisor for EC two and replacing that, uh, that's that's a multi-year project, and they're, it literally is changing almost every single component, both within the EC two data plane and across the EC two control plane. And where we started was in twenty twelve. The first thing we wanted to address was to get better network performance, and back then we were struggling with sort of tail latencies on network, and so while well, the network latency itself wasn't wasn't bad. For what you would get from a software hypervisor like Xen, the tail latencies were, were, were a challenge for some customers. And so, the, what I meant by that is, you see jitter, and so you'd, you'd have sort of a baseline of latency, but then you'd get these spikes every now and then of latency that you know you really just you, we, we couldn't find a way to solve. And that just comes down to the fact that our hypervisor was sharing the same physical core, the same server as the customer workload. And so, anything that's putting load in that core is going to affect other components and can give you jitter. And so, that's where we decided back then was to offload the networking to a physical card. And so we essentially got a card we could run Linux on, and we wrote our networking stack to run on that card, Um, that became part of the NIC, so the network packets would come into the NIC with the entire networking, the processing that we need to do, which includes encapsulation of those packets to make sure that it can work within a VPC, and we'd run our own software-defined network there, and there's a lot of stuff that has to happen before it gets to your instance. That all happened on hardware, and we launched that with our C3 instance at reInvent in 2012. Our first reinvent actually, and that had massive improvement in uh, network latencies, and that jitter we were speaking about just completely disappeared, and so that was the sort of first sign that this this hardware was the right the right path to go, and then from 2012 through to you know end of 2018, uh, it was only really or 20 yeah 2017 sorry, which is when we launched our C5 instance. So it was really this ongoing process of offload. We started with networking, then we did EBS. So offload for EBS storage. And then we did NVMe drives, and so a controller for NVMe drives with our i3 instance. And then eventually we said, you know what, let's just move everything. Can we get to a place where the, the actual core that the customer is going to use, the processor, that we make 0% of that core? If you go back to what we had on Zen, about 20% of that core was dedicated to EC2 processing and 80% given to the customer where we are today is 0% is dedicated to, the, to EC2 and 100% of that core is given to the customer. And that's why we're able to do things like bare metal. Uh, bare metal is essentially running an EC2 instance without a hypervisor. And so we're able to run our entire hy- uh, Nitro system and then remove the hypervisor completely. And so you literally have bare metal access to the underlying hardware, um, which has been quite a big step forward. And so it, it was a journey. I think one of the biggest challenges was just honestly committing to that journey and the amount of time you think about as a business business, knowing you literally want to rewrite almost every single component is quite daunting. I'm very happy we did it. I think it's given us an incredible advantage. Um, And our customers just amazing performance of EC2 instances today.
0: The engineering challenges that you've seen evolve with the popularization of containers. How closely have those containerization engineering challenges mirrored what you saw prior to that with the maturity of virtualization?
1: So I'm not sure I would draw many parallels there. I think you know virtualization back in the day. I think everybody just accepted that it wasn't going to be as performance as you know running on on actual hardware, and so there was a big challenge there. Um, I don't really think that's translated a lot into containers. I think where we struggled more uh, or had to think a little differently about containers, and obviously the serverless space as well, is the rate of change. Right. If you think about um, where we started, when we first started to virtualize, you would maybe launch an instance on VMware or some other virtualization uh, system and you'd run that instance for some period of time. When EC2 came around, you you would launch an instance and run for a period of time. You would shut it down. Your instances became a lot more immutable. And I think in the container space, and you get to the serverless space, things are just becoming more and more immutable. You launch them, you run them for a few seconds because you need to have a task, and you shut them down as well. Um, And so that's where we've had to think a lot in terms of the hypervisor in how much time does it take us to, to actually boot an instance, for example if that takes too long, well, you can't run these sort of very ephemeral workloads um, that you'd want to be running with containers and, and serverless uh, transactions. And so, we've, has changed a lot to become a lot faster to be able to support container workloads, but then also things like Firecracker which is a new mm. hypervisor we built specifically for serverless and container workloads it's sort of built on top of Nitro hypervisor um, but allows you to launch the machine in literally a few hundred milliseconds that, that's allowed us to even support more of these ephemeral workloads and I think you're going to continue to see that workloads are going to be more ephemeral where you don't have a machine running until you absolutely need to start it up make use of it and shut it down again and that's really sort of where the container space has been going as well.
0: looking for a job is painful, and if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, it can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high because Vettery vets both workers and companies. Access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to Vetteri.com.se daily. That's vetter se daily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. We all know that there is a better way to find a job. So check out vetery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through vetery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com/se daily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's v-e-t-t-e-r-y.com/se daily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. The cold start, or You're basically saying that the cold start problem was not as much of a cold start when people were more focused on virtualized server infrastructure because those VMs were longer lived than the containers?
1: Absolutely. I think back in the day, VMs did run for a longer period of time. Uh, people tended to launch a machine and make use of it. They weren't thinking about this idea of launching machines and shutting them down when you didn't need them anymore, right? I actually remember the first time I saw a customer really do that at scale, I believe was uh, back in 2008. I remember it was a Thursday, um, and there was this, uh, there was this uh, company called Animoto. I don't do you remember them? I think it was, I think I it was called Ami, Amimoto, Animoto. And they had this thing where you could basically, I think it was, you could point them at your Facebook stream, and they would generate like a video, of uh, your, your like tube to music with some crazy graphics. Okay. And it, was your, it was this cool little gimmick. And, yeah. and it was a Thursday afternoon because I remember um, they started doing this thing where they would launch a new instance for every movie that somebody subscribed to. And they went viral. And um, we suddenly saw this massive spike of launches on EC2. And we, we kept it up, but I, I won't lie, you know, I'm not lying when I say there was a number of us behind the scenes making sure that then e- early EC2 wasn't gonna fall over. So there was, was a, a new, sudden increase. So they
0: were spinning up a new VM for each video?
1: We were spinning up a new VM for each radio, which I think we later found out was actually a bug in their code. But that was the first time that we actually saw this idea of you know mm-hmm. going from literally almost very little capacity to thousands and thousands of machines suddenly starting up. So that was the first time we saw it. You know, obviously we've seen VMs live for shorter periods of time, and then when you get the serverless and the cold start thing, like those, you want those lambda functions to start up instantaneously. And so we've been working a lot as. EC2 with the Lambda team you know the the secret we shouldn't tell anyone but serverless actually has a server behind the scenes and that server for Lambda is EC2 so we've been working with them to solve the cold cell problem and there's really two things we had to do one was give them a hypervisor that has a very very fast start time and that was firecracker which we actually ended up open sourcing as well so you can go look at firecracker out there and it's really designed to be incredibly lightweight give you the same security boundaries that we have with the Nitro VM, which is something we've never compromised on. We'll never compromise on the boundary between customers' VMs, right? We never want to take any chances there, but can start up a VM in a couple of hundred milliseconds, 100, 200 milliseconds of time. And so that that solves one part of the problem of Lambda. The other part of the problem was for customers using VPC with Lambda, how quickly can I instantiate the networking uh, resources. How long does it take to attach an ENI, for example? And so we've done some work with the Lambda team to get that down to a couple of milliseconds as well. And so I believe Lambda is actually, they've announced and they've rolled out to most of their fleet sort of the solution to cold start. And so Lambda functions are now starting a lot faster and supporting those very ephemeral workloads again, which is where the world's going. So,
0: How does the Firecracker based vision for serverless infrastructure compare to and I don't know if you're familiar with this stuff, but the K-Native suite of projects from the Kubernetes community?
1: So I don't know too much about K-Native, but we have been working a lot with a number of those vendors. So what happened with, with Firecracker is, is we, we built Firecracker, and we, we did use a number of those tools, and not K-Native. I, 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 the name of the other one I'm losing it right now, I remember shortly, but we ended up building it and launching it, and, and it, it was launched at Reinvent last year. It was actually the, 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 it was the number one GitHub project for two days. And so it's pretty, pretty insane. We couldn't believe it. And it just showed that the, the desire in the community was something in that space, right? And so we've been very excited to contribute there from an open source point of view. And so my Firecracker team, which is actually based in uh, Bucharest, Romania, an amazing team out there that built Firecracker, they've been very engaged in the community. And so a lot of those teams are working together. Um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure Knative is involved. But then we've also got another project called Rust VMM, um, which is sort of building a VM uh, management system on Rust which is obviously everybody loves Rust at the moment and so there's a lot of engagement there and again it's a you know with these open source projects it's been really great it's sort of you know you, you the whole competitiveness kind of goes out the window and it's a whole community coming together saying hey what can we actually build you know whether it's ourselves as the cloud provider or any of the other cloud providers or any of the um, other you know chip manufacturers and those sorts of things all coming together and working on that project and so it's early days and all of that stuff and we're excited to see where it goes.
0: Does Firecracker have any hard dependencies on specific hardware?
1: So I don't believe so. Obviously, I think at the moment the I believe we've just finished one that will run on ARM. So it's an x86 processor, and it needs it's obviously a hypervisor, so it has to run on bare metal. And so you can run it on. Uh, we have a lot of customers that run on EC2 bare metal today. But there's also customers that run it themselves on any other hardware that they'd like to use. You know, We've had people even look at using it in like small devices, embedded devices, and things like that. It is very, very lightweight. And so if you need sort of a virtualized environment, it's something you can definitely look at. So
0: the workflow for using a Firecracker instance is, or for using Firecracker, you spin it up on an EC2 instance, and then you spin up your own serverless infrastructure on top of it? Or are you spinning up AWS Lambdas on top of it, Can you help me understand what the workflow
1: is? So the way that it works with Lambda is um, Lambda uses Firecracker, but you don't actually see Firecracker when Lambda uses it. Your interface is talking to Lambda and starting up or creating a function and then executing the function. What Lambda's doing behind the scenes is they're taking a bare metal EC2 instance um, and they're installing Firecracker onto that instance. And then they're managing Firecracker as if it was a VM. And so in much the same way you would have done with Zen, you know, they're creating the necessary uh, com- uh, VM uh, instances or containers, whatever you want to call them, verts, within Firecracker. And so they could put thousands of hypervi- oh, um, machines, servers, instances on that physical machine, and each one of those would be tied to a customer function. And so when the function executes, it's running inside that Firecracker VM. And so that's how you would manage it. If you ran Firecracker yourself, you would you know download it from GitHub and then install it on the machine as a, you know as, as a hypervisor, essentially in much the same way as Zen does, um, and then interact with the Firecracker as a set of APIs that allow you to create images and, and instances and, and, and use it as a hypervisor.
0: Okay. So Firecracker is a hypervisor. Yeah. Okay, got it. What went into the design that allowed you to spin up images faster and reduce the cold start problem? What were you able to strip away, or what kind of performance areas were you able to improve?
1: So the case of Firecracker, it's, it's, it's making it incredibly lightweight, right? And then in reducing the number of devices that you actually emulate. You know, one of the challenges is... so no USB. So, probably no USB. (laughs) There's certainly no printer. What happens with a lot of these hypervisors is they emulate pretty much any device that's been out there in the past, right? right? So, so if you look at what was happening with XAN um, and QMU, you know, it's just amounts a lot of time in the the emulation. And a number of other optimizations as well. You know, I I don't have the details on all of them, um, but it's really stripping that away and getting it to boot, and then obviously making sure that the image you're booting can also be started up really, really quickly. And so thinking about the operating system and what what, you, what are you bringing into memory there. The other side of it was just making sure that the network performs a lot faster and that the state of VPC is being pushed out a lot faster. And that got us down into the you know, sub-second time range for cold start times on Lambda.
0: So that seems like a really good approach to the cold start. There's also an approach I've heard some people talk about where you preload or pre-warm a bunch of containers with, like, Node.js or with Python on it. So as soon as the workload comes in that requires Python on a container, then you can just schedule that workload onto the container that's pre-filled with Python, and boom, you know, you run it really quickly. Do you think that's also a viable approach to reducing the cold start?
1: Uh, it's certainly an approach we've we've, we've looked at, and we've, we've definitely done pre-warming in other parts of Um, EC2 and AWS, right? So there are a number of services that will pre-warm servers and use them. It it depends a lot on, uh, there are a couple of things you want to think about there. One is is the cost. And so how large does your pre-warm pool need to be? All right, because you're essentially keeping capacity around that you may use at some point in the future. Um, you want to have enough capacity because when you don't have capacity in your pre-warm pool, you end up with the slowest start time if you're using that model. Uh, But if you have too much capacity in your pre-warm pool, you're spending money that you shouldn't be spending. Um, So that's one of the things. The other one is from a security point of view. Where's the security Mm. boundary when you you have a pre-warm pool there has got to be nothing in that pre-warm pool that you wouldn't want to give to any random mm-hmm. customer. <laughs> <laughs> and so, when you spin that machine up, like, is it ready for that customer? Was it a pre-warm pool and then allocated to a customer? You also got to think about where's your account boundary. So, you know, you can't move a machine between accounts. And so. You know, if you do have a service where each user is actually on a different AWS account, like, mm. does it work in that? Area. And so there are a number of things. You know, many services have used pre-warming. Oh, you know, one of the teams that's in my organization is the Elastic Load Balancing team as well, and they had used pre-warming. We've used pre-warming on Elastic Load Balancing for some of our older load balancers where. You know, it also runs on EC2, and when we need to have a new machine or new node for the load balancer, so we're able to pull it from a pre-warm pool, and then you really avoid the boot time. So you're able to get another machine into the service a lot faster. So there's definitely places where we've used that very effectively, and I'm sure our customers do it as well.
0: As businesses become more integrated with their software than ever before, It has become possible to understand the business more clearly through monitoring, logging, and advanced data visibility. Sumo Logic is a continuous intelligence platform that builds tools for operations, security, and cloud-native infrastructure. The company has studied thousands of businesses to get an understanding of modern continuous intelligence, and then compiled that information into the Continuous Intelligence Report which is available at softwareengineeringdaily.com/sumologic. The Sumo Logic Continuous Intelligence Report contains statistics about the modern world of infrastructure. Here are some statistics I found particularly useful. 64% of the businesses in the survey were entirely on Amazon web services, which was vastly more than any other cloud provider or multi-cloud or on-prem deployment. That's a lot of infrastructure on AWS. Another factoid I found was that a typical enterprise uses 15 AWS services, and one in three enterprises uses AWS Lambda. It appears serverless is catching on. There are lots of other fascinating statistics in the continuous intelligence report, including information on database adoption, Kubernetes, and web server popularity. Go to softwareengineeringdaily dot com slash sumo logic and download the continuous intelligence report today. Thank you to Sumo Logic for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Inside of Amazon, you to some extent get a preview of what the rest of the world is going to be seeing in a decade. So you see this in internal marketplace things that people are building, as well as. AWS services that are in beta or services that are in alpha or services that are in pre-alpha. And I know you can't reveal too much secret sauce. Can you give me some broad predictions or areas or things that I can keep my eye on that in 10 years are going to seem as inevitable as serverless or edge computing?
1: Yeah, 10, 10 years is a long time.
0: Okay, five years, whatever your prediction horizon is, sure. Sure.
1: Three months okay? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> we can look at it. I mean it's just one of the things to think about is just how how much have things changed in the last ten years. Right? And, you know, like EC2 started 14 years ago. And when I joined the EC2 team, we had no idea what this thing would be. Sure. And you know, where where it is today and where the where the clouds have been today, I think things have changed a lot. So things changed an enormous amount in ten years. I think some of the interesting things we already spoke a little bit about the very ephemeral workloads, right? Things you're gonna be spinning up machines and using them for shorter periods of time. Serverless, obviously, is gonna be a massive uh, movement in that direction. I think some of the other things we're we're excited about is uh, we launched our ARM processor at reInvent this year. So last year we put an ARM processor out there that was what we called our AWS Graviton processor. Um, We had the A1 instance, and it was really just uh, testing the market and putting something out there and saying, hey, here's here's an ARM processor. Interested to see what you do with it. You know, ARM's been very big in the mobile space, but hasn't really had a big play in the server space. And so uh, we were very, very happy with what happened with ARM because it provides you, the initial one provided you with 45% cheaper price performance for your workloads. And so a a workload that ran on an X86 processor, if you could port it to ARM, you could theoretically save 45%, which is a massive saving. What we announced this, week at reinvent is the Graviton 2 processor. And uh, we've actually been working on this for a number of years now already. And we're very excited about the performance we're seeing. And so it's our very first sixth, a generation instance type and giving us significantly better performance than what you can get on current x86 processors, and so it's just a leap forward in processor technology and so if we think about where we're going to be going over the next couple of years it's really up to the community now up to our customers and engineers and developers and software engineers to think about how, how are they going to be are they going to be porting to arm um, is arm really going to become you know a very viable server Chip. Right, now, I think we've we've put one out there now that is really a, a leading chip in many ways, and so it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what engineers do with that. I think obviously, you know, more, more and more stuff is going to continue to move to the cloud. I think one of the big challenges we're we're, we're having now that I think I'm thinking a lot over the next couple of years, and be very interesting to see, is latency and networking. And what's really happened is if you think about how far we've come over the last 10 years. Everything basically is improved to levels that that have removed a lot of blocker for our workloads. And so, you know, CPUs have now gotten to a point where they very seldom need a blocker for any sort of workload anymore. Moore's Law died about four or five years ago. And so we're really at a you know amazing place from a CPU point of view. Memory has made incredible progress. NVMe drives and SSDs have just made an outstanding performance. And the one thing that I think is limiting some workloads, and what I'm starting to see is this need for lower latency. The world is now more mobile. Um, a lot of the stuff we're consuming is from our phones over LTE networks. And, you know, you think about autonomous vehicles, you think about where IoT is going, you think about um, robotics and what they're doing in data centers and machine learning and vision. You know, you've got things happening at very high speed where you need to make decisions and do inference and latency is becoming a problem. Mm-hmm. And what it comes down to is the speed of light. And we're still working on solving that problem, or yeah. you know, can we make it go any faster? It's a joke, I don't think anybody can. And so that's where you've seen us do things like, well, what do we have to do to solve this problem of latency? Well, we've got to move our workload closer to our users and closer to where, to where our customers' users are. And so we, lo- we spoke about a number of projects this week at reInvent as well, You know, one of them being Outposts, which allows us to bring our hardware into your data center. We also spoke about the local zones, which is this idea of being able to put an AWS availability zone close to our user base i'm excited to be launching our first one there in los angeles which is actually going to be supporting the movie industry and so what they're doing there is filming video, filming movies or, or tv shows on a daily basis those the content which is for a lot of a shot much higher you know resolution than 4k uh, that's uploaded into aws and then they actually have designers and editors and uh, animation artists working on it on ec2 uh, on our G4 instance uh, through the night uh, to make sure that it's ready for the next day and mm-hmm. then the next day. That's this crazy high, high velocity production process. And so we put in, and, and latency that's very important because you can't do animation without, you know, sub millis or sub, you know, 10, 10 millisecond latency. And so our region in Los Angeles is giving that, that part in industry access to very low latency compute. And I think one of the things that's gonna have the biggest impact is 5G. And 5G, you know, I think it's not just a, the next version of 4G. It has a number of different networking features but two of them is obviously much 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 higher throughput Um, so when you can get a couple of tens of megabits from your current 4g connection you could theoretically get up to gigabits one to two to five gigabits from a 5g connection from your mobile device which is just crazy and then the latencies is going to go down to single digit milliseconds and so that completely changes what we can do from an engineering point of view Um, if i'm suddenly able to have a mobile device that can get that sort of latency suddenly i can probably really do games that are hosted server-side and have a really sort of client-side experience with that. right? Autonomous mm-hmm. vehicles can now upload data, potentially even make decisions, mm-hmm. hopefully not whether I should break or not, but decisions yeah. that are remote to that vehicle, maybe maybe paths for routing and things like that. And, you know, driving factories, for example, could people get, get rid of Wi-Fi completely and really just move to 5G? And so it just becomes this sort of ubiquitous connectivity that's gonna be everywhere. And I don't think we know what low latency is gonna give us in terms of software applications. I don't think we knew what 4G was going to give us and what the iPhones and Android phones were going to give us and how much they were going to change over the last 10 years. But uh, I think that's sort of the thing that we're really watching is getting latency down and it's going to drive a whole lot of new workloads. And I think we're all going to be very, very, hopefully pleasantly surprised about how that changes our lives and, and what new software is going to be out there.
0: Dave Brown, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much.
0: This podcast is brought to you by PagerDuty. You've probably heard of PagerDuty. Teams trust PagerDuty to help them deliver high-quality digital experiences to their customers. With PagerDuty, teams spend less time reacting to incidents and more time building software. Over 12,000 businesses rely on PagerDuty to identify issues and opportunities in real time and bring together the right people to fix problems faster and prevent those problems from happening again. PagerDuty helps your company's digital operations run more smoothly. PagerDuty helps you intelligently pinpoint issues like outages, as well as capitalize on opportunities, empowering teams to take the right, real-time action. To see how companies like GE, Vodafone, Box, and American Eagle rely on PagerDuty to continuously improve their digital operations, visit PagerDuty.com. I'm really happy to have PagerDuty as a sponsor. I first heard about them on a podcast probably more than five years ago. And so it's quite satisfying to have them on Software Engineering Daily as a sponsor. I've been hearing about their product for many years, and I hope you check it out at pagerduty.com.